I was thinking about a lot um, about this idea of Madame Defarge knitting, knitting these names, knitting her permission or her life goals. And I think we're all weaving our own tapestry of our life, determining what our life picture is going to look like and this idea that we each control the way that we knit our lives and how our lives knit with other people's lives. And I think we just have to decide if we are going to be consumed like Madame Defarge and focus on all of these negative things that go on in our lives, um, not allowing vengeance to consume our lives and really forming a tapestry of our life that is positive and uplifting and meaningful. How to react to injustice. Two things that you used to kind of heal from that was were gratitude and perspective. These two kind of realizations for him, like him being able to just see the good in his situation and realize that all that he went through, yes, it was unjust and it was unfair, but it made him appreciate so much more the good that he did have and was able to find. And it also like helped him to be in a position where he was better to help others. Hello, everyone. In today's recording, I'll chat with Liberty and Eliza about the middle chunk of Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. To start, a quote of the day, or a couple quotes of the day. I mentioned last time that one of the most famous literary reactions to the French Revolution was Edmund Burke's book, Reflections on the Revolution in France, in which, among other things, he argues that social unity is the result of a kind of ancient inheritance. He writes, By this means, our constitution preserves a unity in so great a diversity of its parts. We have an inheritable crown, an inheritable peerage, and a house of commons and a people inheriting privileges, franchises, and liberties from a long line of ancestors. To contrast this idea of inherited peace and stability, he argues against what he sees as the foolishness and selfishness of the revolutionary spirit. He writes, A spirit of innovation is generally the result of a selfish temper and confined views. People will not look forward to posterity who never look backward to their ancestors. He says, When ancient opinions and rules of life are taken away, the loss cannot possibly be estimated. From that moment we have no compass to govern us, nor can we know distinctly to what port we steer. Perhaps the second most famous literary reaction to the revolution, or I should say reaction to Burke's reaction, is Mary Wollstonecraft's essay, A Vindication of the Rights of Men, in which she argues against what she sees as Burke's blind adherence to tradition and old systems of doing things simply because they're old. She writes this, I perceive from the whole tenor of your reflections that you have a mortal antipathy to reason. But if there is anything like argument or first principles in your wild declamation, behold the result, that we are to reverence the rust of antiquity and term the unnatural customs which ignorance and mistaken self-interest have consolidated the sage fruit of experience. Nay, that if we do discover some errors, our feelings should lead us to excuse with blind love or unprincipled filial affection the venerable vestiges of ancient days. These are Gothic notions of beauty. The ivy is beautiful, but when it insidiously destroys the trunk from which it receives support, who would not grub it up? She cites as an example of this blind adherence to tradition the institution of slavery, and writes this, The whole tenor of his plausible arguments settles slavery on an everlasting foundation. 
allowing his servile reverence for antiquity and prudent attention to self-interest to have force which he insists on, the slave trade ought never to be abolished. And, because our ignorant forefathers, not understanding the native dignity of man, sanctioned a traffic that outrages every suggestion of reason and religion, we are to submit to the inhuman custom and term an atrocious insult to humanity the love of our country and a proper submission to the laws by which our property is secured. I wanted to spend slightly more time than usual dwelling on these quotes because I think they wonderfully bookend the political and philosophical issues that are at stake in the revolution and the issues that we'll see cropping up again and again in future texts for this course. Surely Burke is right to say that the past contains wisdom that we would be fools to abandon. But surely Wollstonecraft is also right to suggest that simply because something was done in the past does not therefore mean that it is by definition wise or good. Every generation therefore faces the same struggle. What aspects of the past are worth preserving and perpetuating? What traditions are good and should be valued? And which are bad and should be overturned? How do we preserve the wisdom of the past without perpetuating its mistakes? How do we avoid making new mistakes if we assume the past has nothing to teach us? Well, we will be talking about this for the rest of the semester, if not the rest of our lives. But for one particularly excellent fictional elaboration of these questions and many others, let's go into that chat with me and Liberty and Eliza. Liberty. Hi, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good. And how are you, Eliza? Hi, I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Doing good. We will be sticking to the middle chunk. Before we do, maybe I thought a good kind of, uh, or maybe a good way to establish a kind of lay of the land, will just be to ask you what you think of these characters. And if you have a favorite to remind you, like there's just an enormous cast of characters here. And this is even Dickens at his most restrained. You know, this is kind of a short Dickens novel. I think in Bleak House, one of his larger books, there are something like a hundred named characters or something. That number might be slightly wrong, but so you know, so we have Lucy Manette, Dr. Manette, her father, the two Defarges, Monsieur Defarge and Madame Defarge, Sidney Carton, Charles Darnay. Then we have, I guess the that's probably the main characters. Then we have, you know, Miss Pross, Jerry Cruncher, Laura, um, Jarvis Laurie, et cetera, et cetera. Who are you the most interested in? I think for me, I first off, there's so many characters that it's it's really hard to pick because it is, yeah, they, they're for, and they're all so different. But the one that I've been thinking about more recently is actually Doctor Manette. First off, we don't really know a lot about like what happened to him while he was wrongfully imprisoned, and so that makes me more curious about you know his life and who he who he was even before because we don't know who he was before he was in prison. We only get like small glimpses of that. And so he's really interesting to me. And and I think there's a scene in the, the chunk that we read that when Lucy gets married, he goes back into like this depressed mm. state where he's making the shoes again. And then it takes him like nine days to get out. And after he gets out, he like doesn't remember what happened before. And I think in a way, like each of us has like our own inner demons that we mm. like Dr. Manette like sometimes they manifest themselves without us even maybe even realizing that. And then like, sometimes it does take like a doctor or Mr. Laurie to point those things out to us and to help us 
like move past those things. So I, I don't know. I just think in that way he's relatable and that we each have just that inner inner demon side that kind yeah. of out sometimes. We've all been wounded and hurt in our own ways. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, some hurts are deeper than others, but yeah, we're all we're all battling with certain pains. I love the scene. You're referring to the scene where Jarvis Laurie tries to very gently reach out to Dr. Manette and has this approach that I'm now paraphrasing, but basically Laurie's approach is I have this friend and this friend has this problem and speaking like third person about Yeah. There's so so much gentleness and tenderness and compassion on the part of Jarvis Laurie. And and Jarvis Laurie doesn't want to rock the boat too much and he wants to preserve um Manette's, you know, feelings of healthy pride. Feel he doesn't want to make Manette feel broken or like a project you know what i mean he's very very tactful and i also love the way manette responds like manette catches on to these hints like oh i'm obviously the one that he's referring to and allow this is another i suppose life lesson dr manette allows himself to be helped it's one of my favorite parts of that scene like he this is what you should do to your friend this is how this is the best way like tell me how far has this progressed how far has this episode progressed I think the best course of action would be X, Y, and Z. So he doesn't lash out and be like, leave me alone, or um, it's none of your business, or how dare you accuse me of losing my mind, or all of which would be normal and healthy reactions. Instead, he he allows himself to be, what's the word, cared for. Yeah. yeah. I think in addition, like each of us have also been in a position of Mr. Lori and that we you know, have a friend who we see go through something really hard and we're not exactly sure how we should respond or help that person. And so I think that's maybe a good example of the way to right. allow them to kind of come to that on their own as well. Right. Yeah. So Eliza, who stands out to you as a character? I was actually going to say Mr. Lori, just for those reasons, just because of like how thoughtful and considerate he is and how selfless he is. He just has sort of this calming presence in the midst of chaos, Mm. like his loyalty and like dedication to the family and his like gentleness in contrast with like all the kind of cruelty going on. So I just, I just appreciate his support. That's why I find him. (laughs) He's my favorite. I think we, I mean, one ongoing question in this course is how should we live? You know, I I think that's an important question that that we need to ask ourselves all the time. It's been emphasized, you know, we've emphasized also in class that this isn't necessarily the purpose of these books, but it is one one of the things they offer us. Yeah, what are we learning about how to live from Jarvis Laurie? Be reliable. Be a person that others can rely on in times of need. Be, uh, be, you know, if someone needs to lean on you, be be lean-onable, I guess, is a, I don't know, horrible way of phrasing it all risk saying I, I it's not my fashion to trash uh, famous authors and i said in class that dickens has, has become a kind of recent favorite of mine I, lucy manette you know and charles darnay are ostensibly the central characters of this book but are in some ways the least interesting and you know we don't have to dwell on this but they're i i don't know if you have anything to say about this i find them not two-dimensional per se but yeah, just not nearly as nuanced. They don't really change or transform. I mean, they might a little bit, um, but it's the characters around them. So if they're in the center of the plot, which they certainly are, I think it's all the characters that orbit them who have real fascination for me. So I just wanted to say that if anyone is wondering, like, why isn't Lucy Manette and Charles Darnay, why aren't they more interesting? Well, I don't know why. They just, they maybe they don't have to be because everyone who's orbiting them is. Maybe this is why they're like less interesting is that they're kind of like, overly idealistic characters 
because like to me they just seem like the most perfect yeah couple yeah. in the situation and they're doing like the thing that we would most want yeah um so in a way that makes them less interesting because i don't know they're they're just not doing the things that that are interesting they're just kind of doing <laughs> what they right. need to be doing <laughs> it's not interesting yeah they're slightly romanticized idealized characters as you say but i want i mean to to throw them a bone i mean people like that exist you know people like this who are just like wow you are the most decent person i've ever met i don't think this is heavily fictionalized i'm sure charles dickens knew people like this so it's just slightly unfortunate that those kinds of people because maybe they're not confl- they don't have as many inner conflicts or they don't undergo as much of a character arc or slightly unfortunate that such people aren't as interesting to read about even though the world needs as many of them as it can possibly get. I don't know. I was thinking about, you know, the fact that Lucy and Yad um, are a little less interesting. And it reminded me of the other week when I was watching a show with my friend and I was just so frustrated. I was like, ah, bad things keep happening. Like, why do bad things keep happening? I wanted to stop. And my friend was kind of like, oh, well, if that didn't happen, there wouldn't be a show. Like, there wouldn't be yeah, a story. Yeah. And I like, oh, it's like a hard thing to accept from like characters who have, like the most troubled past yeah. or the most kind of questionable characters. They're the ones that are, you know, the most compelling and the most interesting. And with the kind of bad things happening in the show, like in comparing that to real life, of course, in real life, we prefer for good things to happen. We don't prefer for bad things to happen. But then in, you know, when you're reading about it, you know, it's more fun to read about <laughs> when they yeah. do. Then people like that, like real people like that in the real world, you're like, you're totally right. We always need more of them and they make the world a brighter place and so it feels kind of you know you feel kind of guilty putting these really good people and characters down you're like yeah and i like the other ones better you know <laughs> because they are like super important to have that just got me thinking though at the same time that like who would i maybe be in this situation because i think with my I guess like modern American view of this situation, I probably would be like a, a Charles Darnay who's like, like when he gets to Paris flabbergasted at like what's mm. what's happening and like the basic human rights that are being completely run over. And I feel like that's probably mm. how I would view, you know, what's happening. That's it's almost like he can't even comprehend what's going on and chooses to see only like the same as Lucy, chooses to see only like the good in people and really wants to be merciful. And I feel like Honestly, that's probably how I would, based off like the way I was raised, view in this situation. And so maybe that's why I find them less interesting, because that's exactly what I would be thinking. I love that comment. I mean, we all have bits and pieces of all of these characters in us. There are bits of Charles and Lucy that I, I see in myself. I mean, Lucy's devotion to her parents, for example, um, or her father, you know, is something that I find very moving and real and relate to. I see a lot of myself in Sydney Carton. I mean, maybe the one reason why the other characters are slightly more interesting is because they're, they are more flawed. There will be moments of Charles Darnay-esque behavior and Lucy Manette-esque behavior that we can relate to. But of course, you know, Sydney is, it was referred to as his laziness before or his self-defeating attitudes. You know, I have lots of that in me too. So we see these other characters acting in ways that aren't good. And we think, oh, that's, that's a version of me, which leads me into, um, Madame Defarge, I wanted to just briefly glance at these knitting chapters. We talked about them a little bit in class, but there's a little bit there more to emphasize. Before we dive into that, though, uh, so we ended the last podcast. That Marquis who kills that boy with his carriage is murdered. Mm-hmm. 
he's murdered by that boy's father. And then that boy's father is hanged. Is, the plot is actually quite difficult to follow at times. I don't know if either of you feel this way, but it's not an easy book plot-wise to, to follow. Charles Darnay marries Lucy Manette. Let's go to page 179. I just want to read a little bit of this knitting language. I find these really exciting chapters. So Madame Defarge's defining trait as a person is that she knits, 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 knits. And all of these Jacques, Jacques 1 and Jacques 2, this is a code name. It's how they would refer to each other to keep their real identities secret because they're plotting this revolution. So this is at the top of page 179. If you have a different edition, it's the chapter called Knitting. Are you sure, asked Jacques II of Defarge, that no embarrassment can arise from our manner of keeping the register? This register is a list of offenders against the people of France that the revolutionaries are keeping. Who do we now have to bring to quote-unquote justice? Or I'm about to ask you if their real motive is something more like revenge. They're keeping a list of these names. Are you sure that no embarrassment can arise from our manner of keeping the register? Without doubt, it is safe, for no one beyond ourselves can decipher it. But shall we always be able to decipher it? Or I ought to say, will she? Jacques returned to Farge, drawing himself up. If Madame, my wife, undertook to keep the register in her memory alone, she would not lose a word of it, not a syllable of it. Knitted in her own stitches and her own symbols, it will always be as plain to her as the sun. Confide in Madame Defarge, it would be easier for the weakest poltroon that lives to erase himself from existence than to erase one letter of his name or crimes from the knitted register of Madame Defarge. She's knitting this list. And we talked about the spinning fates in class, how this is a humanized version of this mythological figure of the spinning fates. I don't want to talk too long, but there's another bit on 185. So this is the chapter still knitting. The Defarges are speaking with you know others in their cohort. It is a long time, repeated his wife. This is Madame Defarge. And when it is not a long time, vengeance and retribution require a long time. It is the rule. It does not take a long time to strike a man with lightning, said Defarge. How long, demanded Madame, does it take to make and store the lightning? Tell me. Defarge raised his forehead thoughtfully as if there were something in that too. It does not take a long time, said Madame, for an earthquake to swallow a town. Tell me how long it takes to prepare the earthquake. A long time, I suppose. So even their own metaphors are metaphors of cataclysmic disasters. Maybe this question isn't focused enough, and I apologize if it's too general, but yeah, what would you say about the relationship between vengeance and justice in this book? Do these things overlap? Is there one motive that is always bad and another that is always good? Are they sometimes the same thing, never at all the same thing? Yeah. Any any thoughts? Dickens kind of talks about just the the effect that the the revolution, if we can even call it that, has had on the land itself and the people itself. Um, and it talks about them as being like an angry ocean. I like that analogy a lot that it says that on page 243, it says that they the firm earth shaken by the rushes of an angry ocean, which had no now no ebb, but was always on the flow higher and higher to the terror and wonder of the beholders of the shore. Three years of tempest were consumed. Three more birthdays of little Lucy had been woven by the golden thread into the peaceful tissue of the life of her home. That just really put it into perspective for me that this is not about them justifying themselves and the fact that they, even after they are done fighting, they go home and they still have to feed their children, but then like their, their children are starving and they're like still hungry. Everyone's still poor. Everyone's still hungry. It seems like yeah. no solution is really being met. Um, and just the fact that, you know, it says that three more birthdays of little Lucy, who we can just picture this little innocent girl were consumed by this 
this ocean of this rage and it's, the rage is never ending and it never will be. And so definitely, you know, the way that they were treated is very wrong. And Dickon make, makes a good point of saying that it was wrong that they were yeah. treated unfairly, but at the same time that this is a rage and a vengeance that is maybe uncalled for. Excellent. Eliza, what would you add? So justice is definitely a good thing, but then you can't confuse, like, vengeance doesn't equate justice. Like, you can't obtain justice by having vengeance, and that's something that you see a lot in the book. And I feel like, yeah, I feel like there's this one part, like, you know, while justice can, like, be obtained, like, vengeance will never, you know, the the hunger for it will never be satisfied. And it kind of reminds me of this one part in the chapter, The Sea Still Rises, where Defar says to his wife, he says, at last it has come, my dear. And she responds, ah, well, almost. And so, like, it's just, like, always, it's just never, you know, never enough. Like, he's just like, okay, the time has come. And she's like, well, almost has. And, you know, as you can see for her, who's, like, keeping track of her enemies and making a list and, you know, it, it, her thirst for vengeance and, like, justice will never be satisfied because she's, like, you know, mistaking the two. And, yeah, it's really dangerous in the end. Yeah. These are such great comments. Liberty, go ahead. Yeah, I just, I was just thinking when you said that, like, like she's keeping a list of the people and the wrongs that they've done to her. And it just made me think about how, how ridiculous that might be today. Like if I were to just in my journal, keep a list of that day, who wronged me and what they did. And then like later on to be like, I'm going to do this to you because you did this yeah. to me. It's kind of like when that guy, I forget what his name is. There's so many names in this. Um, yeah, there are. Where he he's the one that like had said that they were going to put grass, like that they could eat grass. He And then like they all just come and, and want to kill him. But in this way where they put grass in his mouth and they, they like specifically with this one thing that he said is like coming back to haunt him. That's right. He said that they could eat grass, which yeah. is a horrible yeah. thing to say. But nonetheless, they use that to brutally murder him. And so, I don't know, I can't imagine keeping a list of the wrongs that have been done to me. Yeah, I want to go, I want to look at that scene in some detail, but you both have said so many great things. I'm Every time I have these chats, I'm so, um, yeah, I'm so happy that I'm doing this in a dialogue-y way and not a monologue-y way, because you've picked up on details from the text that I wouldn't have. I wonder if I'll be able to remember all of these. I just want to circle back and highlight and amplify some of the points that you've just made. So this ocean, Liberty, you started by saying this ocean. Yes, these people have been oppressed beyond imagination, and Dickens clearly has a lot of sympathy for for them. And in fact, Dickens himself, as a as a man, was as a boy, was his his father was this kind of notorious. Um, I don't know. I don't know if spendthrift is the right word, but was thrown into debtor's prison. And as a thirteen year old, as a or a twelve year old boy, Dickens was sent to a factory to start earning money. You know, in Victorian times, factories for twelve year old boys were not. You know, they didn't have weekends or holiday pay or overtime pay. I mean, he, this was brutal semi-slave labor, you know, and he's 12. So he was traumatized by this as a boy and for the rest of his life cared deeply about this, about the poor and carried this trauma into his writing. But then what do you do, Liberty and Eliza? It's like, you raise a good point. What do you do when there are not just one or two such cases of downtrodden and oppressed peoples, but they start to tally into the millions and all of these drops add into this ocean? And the ocean, I mean, here's a question that I'm not qualified to answer, but we could speculate on for 60 seconds. What is this thing that is sometimes called mob mentality? Why do groups of people 
act in ways that each individual member of this group wouldn't choose to act in. This this book clearly evokes such behavior. I'm curious just to take a quick temperature of your thoughts about this issue and then circle back to some of the other issues that you've already raised. Why do humans in, in collective groups act, I think, usually worse than they do one-on-one? Well, I think this question is super relevant because I think we've seen just like a lot of maybe mob mentality in today's day and age. Yeah. But Mimi actually highlighted this specific part on page 164 when he's talking about the like a mob. And it says, the crowd gradually melted away and perhaps the guards came and perhaps they never came. And this was the usual progress of a mob. And so there is, there does seem to be this usual progress of a mob that for some reason, when we get in groups, especially when we get in groups of like-minded people who have maybe been injured by oppression or, or, or they're very poor, they have like one specific thing. There seems to be this, I feel like there's these instigators that start that start things instead of it being more just and and more, I guess, civilized, turning into into this mob, and then then it goes through the the usual progress of mob. Yeah, so it's kind of an interesting fact, and I, I don't necessarily know why humans do that, other than maybe to say that we have the natural man inside of us. And yeah, yeah, Eliza, I don't know. What would you add? Part of the reason is you know when people are frustrated about something, people kind of get tired like you know they don't like keeping it to themselves so then when other people like share the same frustration they have this sense of protection I feel like when you're in a mob you feel protected and so you're just more likely to kind of not think about your actions and just let your emotions control you because you're not afraid of the consequences that it will bring I mean I think we've all felt this that inside of a large crowd you're slightly more anonymous you're not being kept track of so you can maybe slightly get away with things that standing on your own outside of the crowd, you wouldn't be able to get away with. And the natural man notices that and thinks, oh, I can kind of assert myself in these slightly ugly ways. Not all crowds devolve into this. You know, we see peaceful protests all the time. Again, I'm not qualified to just describe the differences, why this happens sometimes and not other times. Does this book offer any kind of specific reasons why this happens to some groups of people and not others? Some, I mean, literally, I don't mean populations, I mean crowds. Why sometimes this happens to a crowd and other times it doesn't happen to a crowd. If we're, if we're keeping this how to live document, I wouldn't really want to add to it, don't join crowds. Because sometimes we want to, and sometimes there's a lot to gain out of this. But what is, what, what is the injunction here? Well, I think it's not necessarily don't join a crowd, but like don't let yourself be controlled by a crowd. Because I think in that same page that I referenced earlier about how the usual progress of a mob talked about how the people kept going just for the mere entertainment of it. Mm. It wasn't even necessarily that they like had this justice that needed to be fulfilled inside them, like this fear. Yeah. I'm sure there were a few of them that felt that way, but for the most part, they were maybe bored. They just it yeah, was entertaining yeah. for them to be part of this. And so I think it's not finding entertainment where entertainment shouldn't be, I guess. It it's, it's reminds me of the onlookers of the trial that this novel began with. Remember, Charles Darnay is on trial for being a, a spy. And Jerry Cruncher and all the other English people are on, looking and imagining. And they're already performing the sentence in their minds with their imagination. They're already hanging and drawing and quartering him. They, they kind of can't wait for that to happen. So they have this bloodlust in them, 
I mean, this isn't what you said, Liberty, I'm adding to your point. Your point was we must retain our individuality and not forfeit our agency to other people, you know, not let the momentum of their actions decide our actions. That's one good answer. Another answer is one thing that stopped that English crowd from like, so Charles Darnay is acquitted at the beginning of the novel. They're probably disappointed. Maybe a lot of them think, oh, he, he really is a traitor. Maybe they think this, this verdict is, is unfair. Smiling now because I'm thinking about you know recent events with election fraud claims and stuff. Maybe certain people in that crowd thought this this verdict was unjust. What is stopping them from rushing the gates and picking up Charles Darnay and performing their own sentence? It must have something to do with a respect for the institution. If the court of law says this is the verdict, then they they kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, that kind of is too bad. But you know there are boundaries. And this institution is a boundary line. And we, we in this society, we might not agree, we might be upset, but we respect the boundaries. I'm so nervous to talk about, you know, the, the Capitol uh, riots. It's in the news, like every 30 seconds, it's in the news, it's in our brains, it's in our minds. This was going on. I, I have a lot of sympathy for those people, actually, because I don't know, we don't need to go down this tangent, but not everyone went there with nefarious purposes. Some people clearly did. Other people didn't go there with nefarious purposes, and yet the ocean that they that they decided to jump into had a momentum that they were not prepared for. And those are the people that I have sympathy with, the people who did who had no nefarious intentions but made the mistake of a- abdicating their their own individuality for this larger momentum. And I'll just I'll stop talking here in a minute, but and the lack of respect for the institution. You know, there are certain boundaries there are certain buildings that we don't break into. There are certain governmental bodies that we don't question. It, it got me thinking about how dangerous someone like Madame Defarge really is, because she is kind of the person that's like has these intentions, that yeah. has these, you know, yeah, she's, yeah. she's making a list and she's going to execute her plan. And anyone yep. who gets in her way is going to be on that list as well. And so, whereas I feel like maybe there were people in this situation who were just kind of going along and following the leader and maybe not thinking about really how they viewed or felt about it, but were just going with, with Madame Defarge and with those leaders. And so I think in that way, because of the mob mentality or this ocean that we've talked about, it is people like Madame Defarge who are the ones who put our maybe our democracy our democracy in danger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And th- there were people in the Capitol building, as you know, shouting, "You know, where is Mike Pence? Where is Nancy Pelosi?" Those these are the the Defarges. What what were they going to do with these people once they found them? It's scary to imagine. And then there were just other people who were making. So there are degrees of mistakes. Some are very severe. Others are less severe. A less severe mistake is to just, as you say, Liberty, look for entertainment where you shouldn't. This this isn't a thing that you join because you're bored one afternoon. That's a, certainly a lesser mistake than the Madame Defarge, I have names and I want heads, you know. It's still a mistake. I feel like it's important, like even though it's not a bad thing to be a part of a group, I feel like it's like it's what Liberty was saying, it's important to keep your individuality and not let things get out of control. When you notice those around you kind of overstepping important boundaries to kind of stand up for it. And I feel like there's a part in the text where this kind of almost happens. And 
Defarge kind of notices that maybe something isn't right and he starts to say something, but then he stops. Like, I don't know mm. if he's out, out of fear or out of, I think it's kind of like a fearful respect for his wife. He says something about like, but it is very strange now at least, is it not very strange? Rather pleading with his wife to induce her to admit it, that after all our sympathy, sympathy for Monsieur, her father and herself, her husband's name should be prescribed under your hand at this moment by the side of that infernal dog. So it's just dog who has just left us. Like, he's kind of like, don't you think like, it's not right that Lucy's husband should be like listed right next to the spy. And she's just like, yeah, stranger things have happened. And that's just kind of as much as said about the matter. And it was yes. like just a really important moment where he was kind of about to stand up for what was right and he was still he wasn't you know he still had the same beliefs like he still felt he belonged to the group but you know he noticed this like little this thing that wasn't right and tried to do something about yes. it and he didn't he didn't follow through all the way and that caused like greater injustice later on a fearful respect for his wife is the exact correct phrase I and mean, that's a wonderful way of saying it later on in the book this is not in the section that we are discussing today but in book three of this novel he makes other attempts at trying to appease his wife and to calm her rage. And she basically says to him, look, you can calm the wind and the fire and the, and the ocean, but you cannot calm me. She becomes kind of horrifyingly elemental and frightening. I'm reminded by your comment, uh, Eliza, of the um, unnamed servant in King Lear. Remember this? Where Gloucester is being blinded. And there's a few people in the room who were looking on and the point was made, I can't remember by who, by one of your classmates, the very wise point was made that most of the people in the room do nothing, even though they, they probably aren't in favor of this blinding. There is one person, however, who, who, who sees a line being crossed, risks his life in order to attempt to stop it, and ultimately sacrifices his life. I see here the stirrings of something similar, a kind of courage in embryo in, in uh, Defarge not quite being born, you know, he, he's not as brave as this unnamed servant in King Lear. So he kind of peeks his head up, sees how dangerous it would be to continue and then falls back down. This is a hard lesson to internalize as it's even harder to enact. But if we're at, if we're keeping a mental list here, you know, like do what is right, even at great personal sacrifice. And, and often great personal sacrifice is exactly what will be involved. But in the long run, it would be better for you It'd be better for everyone. It'll just be better for the world. Eliza, you said, like, don't keep lists. And you read that wonderful bit where she says, uh, almost, or what was that thing she said? Defarge says, we are there. And then she says, almost, or not quite, or something. It has come, my dear. And then she says, eh, well, almost. So, yeah. <laughs> Vengeance, you made a great point that I want to repeat. It, it couldn't be repeated enough. Justice can be satisfied, you said. Maybe that's one important difference between vengeance and justice. Justice is something that can be satisfied. This is not to say that, you know, murdered people can be brought back to life. No, but the wrongdoing can be acknowledged publicly and some healing can occur. The society can establish what was what happened was incorrect. Whatever patch can be put over this wound has been put over the wound. But vengeance is never satisfied. It's eternally insatiable. There will always be an, an, an aggression or an offense that we can hold on to and kind of caress and stoke, you know, forever and forever and forever. It becomes an emotion that we like for its own sake in a, in a strange, horrible way. You know, it becomes like they're fighting fire with fire and things just keep getting worse. Like they're trying to 
make a right with two wrongs. And yeah. like the fact is you can't, you can't do that. Like that doesn't work. And what I think these people are missing is they have the right idea of wanting to obtain justice, but they're missing like the mercy, like in order to kind of a part of, a part of achieving that justice is understanding mercy and the growth and healing that comes from like forgiveness and the understanding that people yeah. can change for the better. And it kind of reminds me of this other you know, story about the French Revolution, like Les Mis, how there's that, you know, one guy Javert who's just obsessed with justice and he just, he just spends his whole life just in hate, like just trying to, you know, right this wrong. And he thinks he's doing the right thing, but he just, he doesn't understand, he doesn't understand mercy and the power that comes from forgiving someone and understanding that people can change. And that's what makes things right and kind of restore things to like their, like the right order not the, you know, constantly seeking justice, especially in the form of vengeance. Mm -hmm. I love that you brought in Les Mis. It's an equally great book about the same story and talks about the same themes. Is Maybe this is the answer to the question that I was about to ask about Dr. Manette. How has he escaped this? How has he escaped becoming a victim to his own desire for vengeance? That's all Madame Defarge can think about. Vengeance, vengeance, vengeance. She's consumed by it. He... Dr. Manette has been imprisoned wrongly for 18 years. This would consume me. I mean, vengeance would be all I could think about. How has he escaped this trap? On page 196, he's talking to Charles, I think. I think she's talking to his daughter, actually. Oh, he's, yeah, no, you're right. You're exactly right. He's talking to Lucy. And he says this near the bottom of 196. I have looked at her speculating thousands of times upon the unborn child from whom I had been rent, whether it was alive. So he's describing his years in prison. Was my child alive? Where is she? Whether it had been born alive or the poor mother's shock had killed it. Whether it was a son who would someday avenge his father. Parentheses, there was a time in my imprisonment when my desire for vengeance was unbearable. How do you, how do you overcome this desire? As Eliza was talking, it made me think about how maybe that is the difference between vengeance and justice is that vengeance has no mercy, has no end whereas justice does. And I think that especially for Dr. Manette, uh, Lucy is this kind of symbol of mercy for him because even though he was wrongfully imprisoned all these years, Lucy, I guess, was was brought back to him. And because of her, he's able to, instead of let that consume him, allow Lucy to kind of be his reason for allowing this injustice in his life because if he lets it consume him then he can't spend the rest of his days with her and, and have this yeah. peace and joy and so he's been able to find that because he has lucy as like a reason so it's almost like we have to find our reason for like allowing the injustices in our life um while at the same time yeah i guess this, does that make sense it totally does we have to find i i would i would just what I will add to to your comment is sounds immensely cliche. We have to find our reason for living. He has his family. He has his daughter back. He now has a purpose to live, to enjoy time with her. It's not quite King Lear-esque, but there are shadows of this, you know, to just spend his last days with her. This is This is a relationship that to him is full of meaning. It justifies existence. This is what he wants out of life. He just wants to be with his family. So Sidney Carton begins this novel not really having any purpose in life, being a kind of wastrel and a wanderer and a drunkard, and he has nothing noble to do. 
He has nothing meaningful to engage himself. Madame Defarge does have a purpose. It is vengeance. So if she had other purposes to live, family relationships, some kind of noble project, even a noble project related to uh, relieving the oppression of her people, it would be a guiding star for her that would let her not ignore injustice or suffering, but would let her say, I have other reasons to wake up in the morning. I have other more meaningful things to do than keep this stupid list. Yes, those people oppressed me. I'm not giving them a free pass, but my time on earth is finite and I have to do what's the most meaningful. And there are way more meaningful things than tracking down names on a list and you know getting a collection of heads. This is not a meaningful way to live. So, okay, we have 10 minutes. Small Lucy is born, so they have a kid. The Defarges and their crowd storm the Bastille and they go right up to Dr. Manette's cell and they retrieve a piece of paper hidden in the wall. And I just wanted to highlight that because it's it'll become important later. Book two, chapter 22, The Sea Still Rises, it's called. First, just go to page 231. Madame Defarge sat observing it. This is referring to just the, the situation, the crowd, her neighborhood. She sat observing it. And with such a pr- suppressed approval as was to be desired in the leader of the Saint Antoine women, one of her sisterhood knitted beside her, the short, rather plump wife of a starved grocer and the mother of two children withal, this lieutenant had already earned the complimentary name of the Vengeance. You can track down this footnote, but this is more or less an accurate historical detail where certain members of the French Revolution would rename themselves. So they would they would refer to themselves as Jacques in order to amplify the protection of the crowd, the protection that Eliza referred to earlier. They would give themselves these uh, pseudonyms so as, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know why, so as not to be able to be held accountable for their behavior, perhaps. But they would often rechristen themselves and the vengeance, there would be people, you know, this was one that was adopted, the vengeance. So it was a kind of explicit announcement that this was their motive. This was their new identity. This was the emotion that they were now defining themselves by. Yes, there's this man named Foulon. He was this rich, very rich, annoying guy, you know, <laughs> typical rich, annoying guy who says, well, if the poor people are hungry, let them eat grass, echoing you know, one of the most famous statements ever, let them eat cake. This is what Marie Antoinette says. Well, if they have no bread, why don't they just eat cake? I mean, no wonder they are angry. No wonder these people are angry. It's the most insensitive thing to say. He says, let them eat grass. He's caught. And what is his punishment? It is this kind of Dante-esque punishment meets the crime. They, they, they tie him up. They stuff grass down his throat. I'll just read a little bit on 232. So the question was going to be, is this justice? I mean, the obvious, the answer is obvious. No. I'll phrase a better question. What could have happened to this man instead? What would justice have looked like for this man? This is the question. Yeah. 234. Down and up, the head foremost on the steps of the building, now on his knees, now on his feet. So this is describing the prisoner. Now on his back, dragged and struck at and stifled by the bunches of grass and straw that were thrust into his face by hundreds of hands, torn, bruised, panting, bleeding, yet always entreating and beseeching for mercy, now full of vehement agony of action, with a small clear space about him as the people drew one another back that they might see, now a log of dead wood drawn through a forest of legs, he was hauled to the nearest street corner where one of the fatal lamps swung. And there, Madame Defarge let him go, as a cat might have done to a mouse, and silently and composedly looked at him while they made ready and while he besought her, the women passionately screeching at him all the time, and the men sternly calling out to have him killed with grass in his mouth. Once he went aloft and the rope broke, and they caught him shrieking. Twice he went aloft and the rope broke, and they caught him shrieking. 
Then the rope was merciful and held him, and his head was soon upon a pike with grass enough in the mouth for all Saint Antoine to dance at the sight of. So he's hung and killed, not just hung and killed, tortured beforehand and humiliated. I want to ask, maybe this is our closing question. Clearly people who have oppressed the French populace. And so they must be brought to justice in some way. How? You know, if you are now the court of law in revolutionary France and this person is brought to you, what should be done? It's a really hard question. I feel like it's hard to know what what I would have done specifically because I've never been put in this position of oppression. But I think anytime your punishment goes to such as torture, that's definitely crossed a line. And I think that especially that the only thing of mercy in this scene is the rope that finally hangs him. uh, So sadly ironic. Yeah. I know quite telling as far as that goes. And I, I mean, as far as what I might have done or wanted to be brought to justice, I don't know. That's hard. I feel like it would have had to have been something that was more fit to his crime. It's not like he, I mean, as far as oppression goes, he obviously kept all the wealth for himself and didn't offer yeah. any support to anybody, but I think he didn't like, I don't know. It's hard. I, I don't have a right answer. I don't either. Sometimes I go back. Uh, so I'm thinking about this mob that stormed the Capitol. I'm like, I wonder if Biden should just say universal pardon for everyone involved. Now, I'm not saying I think he should. I'm saying, I wonder if he should, it would be a kind of extreme statement of mercy. Half of my brain wonders if that would help heal this extreme polarization that we're all suffering under. It's like, look, let's forget it. We're all brothers and sisters. Let's forget it. Universal pardons for everyone. I don't know, because then on the other hand, people were killed. You know, people were killed. So what this is this is the universal question. Liberty is absolutely correct in struggling with this when to administer mercy, when to administer justice, how much of one is not enough and how much of one is too much. Liza, (laughs) solve this problem for us. Um, Man, I don't know. I mean, even just imprisoning him would have been, I feel like a better, you know, like just something less cruel. Sure, he needs to be punished, but torture and it just, it doesn't solve any problems and it just kind of you know, causes more problems. And like something I noticed is like when they got back from this, this big like mob, like torturing this man, when they came back, their children are like crying and they don't, and they're hungry. And it kind of, it's kind of ironic because it's similar to the offense of the man that they had just Mm. like murdered where they let, of course, it's a different situation, but he, just as he had let his own selfish kind of desires get in the way of other people's well-being that's kind of what they did with their children kind of like leaving them and yeah and not not caring for them they let he let they let this other concern take priority it just doesn't it doesn't add up and i don't know it's a very hard question like the balance between finding justice and also not getting you know too carried away and like you know having mercy for the man but i feel like it definitely would have made yeah them them just like putting him in prison and showing more mercy right. to him instead of having him have to die such a gruesome humiliating death would have it would have been like them more being the better person and being like see this is what yeah. we're fighting for and this is what we this is what the revolution was for so we could be like actually <laughs> like just and good yeah 
yeah. like, Cor- like Cordelia says, when Lear says to her, like, if you have poison for me to drink, I'll drink it. And she says, no, no cause. I have no cause to be upset with you. No cause. This is an extreme version of mercy. And, it, and sometimes we think, wow, this is what the world needs. This is what a relationship needs. Other times we think, no, justice needs to be done. You're both right to say, well, at least no torture. I mean, I think civilized countries are more or less universally agreed on this point that torture is always bad. Don't be okay with collateral damage. Like their kids are collateral damage too. They're starving kids. And that wonderful moment about Monsieur Defarge saying, well, is it right that these people are thrown under the bus too? Madame Defarge saying, yeah, I don't care. You know, that's not okay. So don't be okay with that. Don't be okay with innocent people suffering in your pursuit for justice. Torture is not okay. Mercy is always good. It's always better to decide on like more mercy rather than not. I think in the end that would do more to mend hearts and help things get get to the place yeah. where you actually want them to be than the other way around. I, You must be right, Liberty. I mean, if there's anything that the New Testament teaches us, it's that, isn't it? And it's that book, the New Testament teaches us a lot, but that's certainly at the top of the list, like yeah. err on the side of mercy, even extreme mercy, even mercy that looks unfair. Mm-hmm. And then I guess my last point that I was thinking about a lot actually because of this book is about this idea of Madame Defarge knitting knitting these names, knitting her kind of her mission or her life goals. And I think each of us, it's kind of like that conference talk that Elder Uchtdorf gave, not like, I don't know how long ago that was, but he talks about we're all weaving our own tapestry of our life and how experiences is kind of determining what our life picture is going to look like. And this idea that we each control the way that we knit our lives and how our lives knit with other people's lives. And I think in a way that we just have to decide if we are going to be consumed like Madame Defarge and focus on all of these negative things that go on in our lives. And definitely that's going to be part of it. We have to make sure that we're not being taken advantage of, but at the same time, not allowing vengeance to consume our lives and really forming a tapestry of our life that is positive and uplifting and meaningful and not empty like Defarge. Something that kind of goes along with that, how you're talking about how we need to learn how to how to like overcome vengeance in our life. I just had one last thing that I wanted to say, but something that I noticed that uh, that Dr. Manette teaches us about how to react to injustice and impression is two things that he used to kind of heal from that was were gratitude and perspective. And so there's the one part where he's talking to his daughter and talking about, he says, I recall these old troubles is the reason that I have tonight for loving you better than words can tell and thanking God for my great happiness. And then later on, he says, for the first time, the doctor felt now that his suffering was strength and power. It all tended to a good end, my friend. It was not mere waste and ruin. So these two, these two kind of realizations for him, like him being able to find, to see the good in his situation and realize that all that he went through, yes, it was unjust and it was unfair, but it made him appreciate so much more the good that he did have and was able to find. And it also helped him to be in a position where he was better to help others. And I feel like when we face injustice or like betrayal and that sort of thing in our life, that's an important thing to consider that we can find healing from that, not through vengeance, but through gratitude and stepping back and looking how things have worked together for the greater good. Wow. I can't thank you both enough for such a great chat. What great observations and insights. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
For the poem of the day, I wanted to continue reading William Wordsworth on the French Revolution. Last time, I read an excerpt in which he expressed excitement and joy at the prospects of a tyranny being overthrown and an oppressed populace being freed. Of course, as time passed and the reign of terror began and continued, and so much unnecessary blood was spilt, Wordsworth, as well as many others, expressed fear and contempt at the violence that the revolution had devolved into. In the prelude, his long autobiographical poem, he writes this. This was the time in which, inflamed with hope, to Paris I returned. The fear gone by pressed on me almost like a fear to come. I thought of those September massacres, divided from me by a little month, and felt and touched them, a substantial dread. And in such way I wrought upon myself until I seemed to hear a voice that cried to the whole city, Sleep no more. To this add comments of a calmer mind, from which I could not gather full security, but at the best it seemed a place of fear, unfit for the repose of night, defenseless as a wood where tigers roam. Later in the poem he describes being out in the country and receiving some news about the death of Robespierre, one of the leaders of the revolution and the subsequent reign of terror. Wordsworth writes this, I paused, unwilling to proceed, the scene appeared so gay and cheerful, when a traveller, chancing to pass, I carelessly inquired if any news were stirring. He replied in the familiar language of the day that Robespierre was dead, nor was a doubt on further question left within my mind, but that the tidings were substantial truth, that he and his supporters all were fallen. Great was my glee of spirit. Come now, ye golden times, said I, forth beating on those open sands a hymn of triumph. As the morning comes out of the bosom of the night, come ye. Thus far our trust is verified. Behold, they who with clumsy desperation brought rivers of blood, and preached that nothing else could cleanse the augin stable, by the might of their own helper have been swept away, their madness is declared and visible. Elsewhere will safety now be sought, and earth march firmly towards righteousness and peace. They who ruled our state, though with such awful proof before their eyes that he who would sow death reaps death, or worse, and can reap nothing better, childlike longed to imitate, not wise enough to avoid. Giants in their impiety alone, but in their weapons and their warfare, base as vermin working out of reach, They leagued their strength perfidiously to undermine justice and make an end of liberty. Well, that's it for now. The next recording will be with me and a couple of you about the conclusion of Dickens' novel. Keep reading in the meantime, and of course, keep enjoying the readings. (laughs) 